I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. I can't remember the first time I saw the musical Oklahoma, and I don't remember not knowing the words to the opening song. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye, and it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. Chokma, Sahostrafo at Amanda Cobb Greetham, Chikasha Saya. My name is Amanda Cobb Greetham. I'm a Chickasaw citizen. I am a professor of Native American studies at the University of Oklahoma, and I am very much from this place, born and raised in southern Oklahoma in the Chickasaw Nation. The song of Amanda's childhood is called Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, and it's the opening number to Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein's classic American musical, Oklahoma. An interesting aspect to me of Oklahoma's mythology is the extent to which it is relatively unquestioned. The whole idea of there being a bright golden haze on this meadow, this is something that is both highlighted but also obscured. It's a haze you can't necessarily see clearly, so it's designed to make you feel something, but not necessarily to be clear about what that is. Amanda's writing a book about all this, about the gaps between myths and the state's actual history. Oklahoma, the musical, is front and center. She's calling her book Bright Golden Haze, Oklahoma Indian Identity in Myth and Memory. Public history and memory combined, this is what we collectively agree our history to be. You have um, specific stories that are generally based on some fact, but then they take a turn and start to turn into the world of legend, mythology. They work past that. Amanda argues that one of those stories is Oklahoma and that it's been able to work past fact and history, partly because it's got all the makings of the type of story that dominates American mythology of the West. Of the coming to a new place, overcoming the odds, people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, of the building of something out of nothing, a perceived nothing, a perceived empty vast plains or vast wilderness. It's the, it's the beginning of the song Oklahoma itself. The massively famous title song of the musical. Couldn't be a better time to start in life. It ain't too early and it ain't too late. Starting as a farmer with a brand new wife. Soon be living in a brand new state. Brand new state. It is a version of the ultimate American story. 
This ultimate American story sits alongside some other big and pretty romantic ideas about westward expansion in the U.S., the taming of the land, a vision of not just Oklahoma, but the American West and the country itself. Something sort of idyllic, Edenic, if you will, like here is this perfect place, this perfect, pure and untouched place, which of course it wasn't. The musical's vision of Oklahoma, this romantic vision, is really at odds with the histories we've been telling you. The forced removal of Native people in the 1800s. Government policies that took land so white settlers could get it. The musical is set in 1906, the year before Oklahoma became a state. In reality, that land was far from empty, far from an untouched Eden. Amanda Cobb-Greetham remembers the first time this all started to dawn on her. She was in middle school, in the audience with the musical she loved being performed for the state's 75th anniversary. And that's when so many different schools, community theaters, production groups were doing the musical Oklahoma as part of their celebration year, right? And I remember, you know, seeing it again and standing and listening to it and clapping your hands and all of those things and then thinking, why is it that there are no Indians in this musical? How is it that this show is just bright white? How is that possible, knowing when and where this takes place? Amanda is still grappling with that question. How a musical that she has really fond memories of, from state celebrations, school performances, her dad singing it on car trips, could be obscuring something so much darker how it could skip over a big part of the state's real history, how it could make something violent, the era of Native land being taken swiftly, brutally, seem warm and fuzzy, bright and golden. I'm Alison Errara, and this is In Trust. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. If you haven't seen Oklahoma the Musical, you've probably at least heard of it. It dominates imagery of the state. But back before it was a smashing success, stories of Okies and the Grapes of Wrath dominated the national narrative about Oklahoma. The Dust Bowl, the Depression. Times in Oklahoma were hard, and people around the country knew that. An Okie was a dirty word, and all of Oklahomans were represented as sad and ignorant and destitute. But then in the 1940s, the musical Oklahoma came along. It was so popular. And its story, in all of its golden glow and nostalgia, was far more persistent. Oklahoma is a story about cowboys and farmers living in a territory just before statehood. It takes place around the turn of the century, when there were deep divides over land. Things are changing. There is discussion about prairies closing up, frontiers closing up. There's more fences than there used to be. There's contentious relations between the cowboy and the farmer. But that's all the background. The story itself hinges on a romance. Between Lori, a farmer's daughter, and Curly, a cowboy, there's also a sprinkle of violence. But in the end... It makes you feel good. It's a very heartwarming story uh, about simple folk uh, in the Southwest in a kind of pastoral world um, that is idyllic, as are many pastoral worlds. This is Tim Carter. He's a musicologist at the University of North Carolina. His book is called Oklahoma, The Making of an American Musical. He spent years researching, writing, and just thinking about this musical. And Tim says that when it hit Broadway, no one really understood how big it would be. I think when Rodgers and Hammerstein started out, they didn't think they were going to produce this great success that was going to have such massive implications, both for Broadway and more broadly. But by some magic... It was enormously and incredibly popular. It had a record number 2,212 performances on Broadway. And it became the longest-running musical on Broadway of its time. It was such a big deal. Tim says some of this success was a matter of timing. Oklahoma arrived at a big moment. It was uh, performed in 1943 on Broadway. So, a very crucial time, bang in the middle of World War II, so clearly there was a certain amount of propaganda, if you like, that needed to go on here about belonging to the land that was grand. We belong to a land, and the land we belong to is grand. And making people realize that there were things worth fighting for in the middle of World War II, at a time when the World War wasn't going so well for the Allies. And it was the job of Broadway and of the arts in general to try and make a contribution to the war effort. New York was a big transit point for members of the armed forces. Before going to Europe, 
service members often got a chance to go to a Yankees game or a show. Imagine you're about to ship off overseas and go fight against Hitler's army. Goodness knows whether you're going to come back or not. And you find yourself in the heart of Times Square, in a seat, on Broadway. And you hear a group on the stage singing, we know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. At that point, it has to be a powerful memory. It becomes a question of identity. And keeping that identity in your mind as you're going through the horrors of warfare. And for many, the message hit home. I was talking about Oklahoma once to a retirement community. And I was doing my usual talk about the staging of Oklahoma, the theatre guild, and so on. And there was an elderly gentleman in the front row um, who um, started crying. Uh, and I went up to him afterwards and I said, Oh, sir, I, I hope I didn't upset you or offend you or anything like that. And he said to me, uh, No, 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 no. I was crying because I was there. And I said, What do you mean I was there? He said, I was there in 1943 when I was in transit <laughs> to go to Europe to fight at the front. And I was one of those people who actually heard and saw Oklahoma. <laughs> and at that point, I thought, Oh, my goodness. It was a very powerful memory on his part. Very powerful memory. Following World War II, the musical only became more ingrained into American identity. It traveled all over the world as part of America's uh, post-World War II Cold War cultural efforts. And year after year, decade after decade, it seeped into American culture. It's been performed on the big screen. Where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. High schools, in community theaters. Grade schools, choirs. And back on Broadway. Amanda says it told a story that many Americans wanted to believe in. It was really easy to use as a tool to make people feel good about being Americans, right? And good about the stories of our origin of um, frontier history on the prairie. But that's not actually what would have been happening in history at that moment. So let's go back to what was actually happening here before it was the state of Oklahoma, when this land was called Indian Territory. Which was carved out and set aside by policymakers in order to house tribes who were forcibly removed on the Trail of Tears. The Cherokee, Chickasaw, Quapaw, and other tribal nations gave up their ancestral homelands in exchange for new treaty homelands assigned in Indian Territory. And there was a promise that this would be Indian land, land that would never be made to be part of any state. The federal government opened Indian territory in the 1830s, and almost immediately, non-Native people around the country tried to figure out how to get this land out of Native hands. And so over decades, the government made laws and policies and signed new treaties with tribal nations that chipped away at Native land. Tribes were even pushed out of some two million acres of land around what's now Oklahoma City. This was called the unassigned lands. The battle to settle those unassigned lands 
it was one of the first big steps toward Oklahoma statehood. That story starts with a group called the Boomers. The history of Boomers has very much been erased. And it all comes to a head in the late 1870s with men like David Payne. David Payne was the founder of what he called the Oklahoma Colony. They saw themselves as colonists, and he would get people to join together with him as fellow colonists, and then they would lead raids into Indian Territory, into the, quote, unassigned lands. Amanda says Payne knew it was against federal law to intrude there, and that federal marshals would come in and kick out his followers. This was purposeful, both the raids to settle and also the desire to be ushered out. Payne led a violent campaign against Native people in the unassigned lands. He made a lot of noise around the country, too. He and his followers, who called themselves boomers, began a national media campaign. To paint themselves as victims. How can there be any land left in the United States upon which the white man cannot go? And that was a very successful media campaign. And one way to make that work was, of course, to go in, start to settle and be ushered out to have standoffs with the federal marshals. The boomer movement picked up a lot of support from cattlemen, farmers, speculators, businessmen, and politicians. They all had interests in undoing federal laws that protected Indian territory. Shouldn't they have the right to this land too? That was the argument, and Payne and the boomers won out. And what it culminated in was the opening of the unassigned lands. In 1889, President Benjamin Harrison declared sections of Indian Territory open for settlement. Within weeks, tens of thousands of people arrived at the outskirts of Indian Territory, ready to rush in and claim 160 acres. April the 22nd, 1889, the day of the first largest and most glorified land run. The land run, a rush to stake out so-called free land. Well, free land never came at such great a cost. There was more than one land run, but the one Amanda's talking about is the most remembered. Picture this. Hundreds of men on horseback, schooners, others on foot. Women, children lined up. They were waiting for the sound of a cannon. And then they'd take off. doing whatever it took to stake claim to this land. Some people went in ahead of that starting gun to get the best plots. Cheaters, basically. But history likes to call them the Sooners. So that's the quick version. The U.S. promised land to tribes who were forced here. That land was chipped away. And in spite of the promises made to indigenous people, eventually this place became a state, Oklahoma. But when it all gets remembered now, it's usually celebratory. There are reenactments of land runs at state celebrations and in grade school where kids get to go outside and pretend to lay claim to plots on a playground. There's a big land run monument in Oklahoma City. And if you're a college football fan, then you probably know about the University of Oklahoma where Amanda teaches. We are right here on the campus of the University of Oklahoma uh, well known for its football team, the mascot, the Sooners, who then, uh, when there is a touchdown, what happens? 
a Land Run reenactment happens. Every home game touchdown, a stadium full of people cheer. Shotguns go off. Two horses named Boomer and Sooner lead a covered wagon onto the football field and race around the stadium. But in all those versions of this history, there's something missing. From the football cheer, the Land Run Monument, it's the same thing Amanda noticed was missing from the musical, Native people. It's an omission that's hurtful. In those school Land Run reenactments I mentioned, Native children have had to take part too for decades, reenacting an event that drove their own ancestors off their land. The reason we're going on about what happened in Indian Territory is that this, it's the history of Oklahoma, a history that didn't make it into the musical. And that omission, it's kind of surprising once you consider where Rodgers and Hammerstein got the idea for their musical. They didn't come up with the story themselves. It came from someone else, someone who was no stranger to the state's actual history. Rodgers and Hammerstein based Oklahoma on a play written a decade earlier by a playwright who was born in Indian Territory within the Cherokee Nation. And though the musical took place in the Oklahoma Territory, the original story, before Rodgers and Hammerstein changed it, took place in Indian Territory. We'll be right back. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I don't think there's really a, a clean way to understand the musical Oklahoma. Without going back to that, this is a... Uh, both a play written by Raleigh Lynn Riggs, a Cherokee citizen. And these were the people that he knew. Lynn Riggs was a lot of things for someone born in Indian Territory in 1899. He was gay, a playwright. He loved writing letters and poems. And he was mixed race, being Cherokee from his mother's side. He was 
born pre-statehood, but then would have been raised in the young state of Oklahoma. Amanda Cobb-Greetham says that Riggs knew the complexity of this place. It was his neighbor's story, his family's story, his story. He often called himself haunted by home. We wanted to highlight some of his letters with a voice actor. I can't make, in drama or poetry, the quality of a night storm in Oklahoma. Home. Oklahoma was everywhere in Riggs's letters and plays. With a frightened farmer and his family fleeing across the muddy yard to the cellar. He lived in New York. He lived abroad. Uh, he wrote. He found himself writing over and over again about people that he knew, the characters that he knew, the cadence of their speech, the things that they talked about, the songs that they sang. When a son and his wife stumbled drunkenly into his mother's house, the words that came out of brazen, tortured throats, the murderous hints, threats. When he says haunted, I think he meant it. This was something that both tortured him in some ways, but that he had great love and affection for. Riggs wrote a lot of plays, but his best-known work was called Green Grow the Lilacs. That's the play that became Oklahoma. As Riggs described it, the play is about a vanishing era in the Midwest, filled with characters he knew and places he'd been. The reason I continue to write about Oklahoma people is that I know more about the people in childhood and youth than any other. But it so happens that I knew mostly the dark ones, the unprivileged ones, the ones with the most desolate fields, the most dismal skies, and so it isn't a surprise that my plays concern themselves with poor farmers, forlorn wives, tortured youth, plow hands, peddlers, criminals, with all the range of folk victimized by brutality, ignorance, superstition, and dread. Riggs started the play in 1929. In his letters, he said it was going to be something new, a drama intercut with American folk songs. Folk music was important to Riggs because it was important to the place he was from. One of the songs people sang there was called Green Grow the Lilacs. Green grow the lilacs all sparkling with the dew. I'm lonely, my darling, since a parting with you. And by the next meeting, I hope... Riggs finished Green Grow the Lilacs in 1931. It had a run on Broadway and played 64 shows. When Rodgers and Hammerstein decided to use his play as the basis for Oklahoma, they acknowledged how great the story already was. In an interview with the New York Times, Hammerstein said, quote, Give credit where credit is due. Mr. Riggs's play is the wellspring of almost all that is good in Oklahoma. I kept most of the lines of the original play without making any changes in them for the simple reason that they could not be improved upon, at least not by me. Riggs got royalties, $250 a week for life. But just 11 years after Oklahoma premiered on Broadway, Riggs died of cancer. Both stage versions of Riggs' story center on the romance between Laurie and Curly. Both versions have a surly farmhand who comes between them. In Riggs' play, he's called Jeter. In Oklahoma, he's Judd. Riggs even bases a character on his Aunt Mary. She becomes Aunt Eller in both shows. You've had 80 years to see this, so we're not going to worry about spoilers. In both versions, Curly asks Laurie to marry him. Judd's jealous. There's a struggle. Curly allegedly kills Judd or Jeter. This sets up the final tension. Will Curly go to jail? 
Or will he go free to live happily ever after with Laurie? So much of the two shows is near identical, but one of the big changes between the two is how they end. Near the very end of Riggs's play, Curly and Laurie get married. Curly gets sent to jail for killing Jeter, but he busts back out to come back to see his new wife. The drama hits its peak when a posse of neighbors show up to haul Curly back to jail. Aunt Eller accuses the neighbors of trying to take Curly from his bride. But what's key is she accuses them of siding with a federal marshal of the United States. The way she's talking, the U.S. isn't her government, but a foreign government. What's the United States anyways? Just a foreign country to me. You support And the mob, well, they're from Indian territory. People like Riggs. And just a quick note, some of the language Riggs wrote nearly 100 years ago might be offensive today. Aunt Eller shoes the mob away. Curly stays with his bride, Lori, before the posse comes to take him away in the morning. Just before the curtain falls, Curly's singing, a condemned cowboy with a guitar. As endings go, it's pretty unresolved, ambiguous, all in keeping with Riggs's world of hardship, clashes, and complicated underdogs in Indian territory. Here's Amanda Copgreetham. So although the Rodgers and Hammerstein interpreted the musical itself as wholly white, in reality, this is a play about Native Americans. It is actually probably an all Native American play or musical. And when then Green Grow the Lilacs was then sort of taken and turned into the Rodgers and Hammerstein extravaganza, you know, that it became, well, that context didn't move with it. By the time the story returned to Broadway in 1943 as Oklahoma, it was a new kind of musical theater. Singing and dancing wasn't just used to divide scenes. They drove the story forward. And that story was lighter and easier to digest. That meant Riggs's ending had to go. There was no place in the new show for a quiet wedding, a jailbreak, and a curtain coming down on a mournful cowboy. So Rogers and Hammerstein tweaked the ending. Tim Carter says the big famous title song was actually a big happy accident. Rogers and Hammerstein couldn't really figure out how to bring the show to its end. Okay, if we can't solve it dramatically, let's stick a song in there and hope for the best. Curly doesn't go to jail. He gets to marry Laurie. So the ending had to become a celebration. So they jumped to a wedding party for Laurie and Curly. A song sung by the whole cast. A dance number with farmers and cowmen. Where a wedding party morphs into something else. Something political. You don't see the wedding. Instead, they sing a song about statehood. Brand new state, brand new state, gonna treat you great. So to me, what you have, you have this romance that really is standing in as a metaphor for statehood. Now, of course, that made the show a hit. It also gave the Oklahoma side to the show, Oklahoma, a much greater prominence. But then, of course, the song took on a life of its own. 
This is the story that premiered on Broadway in the middle of World War II, a musical that builds to a rousing song that would become one of the biggest hits of the 20th century. Since 1943, this musical has had a lot of power. It's become a blueprint for Broadway shows with big singing and dancing, but it's also become so much more. Its closing number was quickly adopted as Oklahoma's state song and still is 70 years later. Oklahoma the Musical is fundamental to how many people in America and around the world think about Oklahoma the state and the American story itself, the expanding West, pioneers, settlers, and cowboys. It's bright and golden, and as Amanda Cobb Greetham says, hazy. What's missing from this version of Oklahoma is the place where Lynn Riggs grew up, a place called Claremore within the boundaries of Indian Territory, a whole backstory of Native people who were pushed aside by white settlers, a story for the collective memory that leaves out the most painful parts. Cultural memory, that which a collective or a nation chooses to remember together, that's the process by which we negotiate what's included, what's excluded, what events we assign meaning to and what meanings we assign to them. That's what cultural memory is for, to bind people together. Gotta remember the other half of memory is forgetting. Those go hand in hand. I asked Amanda how she feels about the land run, Sooner Football Games, or Oklahoma the Musical. I have clapped and yelled Boomer Sooner at football games. I ran the land run as a kid. At the end of the musical Oklahoma, when they're singing it, everybody in this state anyway stands up and claps your hands. And I admit these things freely because I'm not ashamed of my participation in it. Here's the thing though, what is it obscuring? When you start to ask yourself that, when you ask yourself, wait, are we all included in this identity? It's as if the state of Oklahoma thinks that if you just sing this song loud enough that you won't be able to hear anything else. And that's just almost true, but it isn't. Amanda also says there's something important to keep in mind about the stories that take hold in our memories. It's that they can change. New ones can come in and help redefine our sense of our history, add voices we haven't been hearing from. There's always room for a new Oklahoma story to take hold, maybe a big movie or a TV show like Reservation Dogs that can help recalibrate that cultural memory and make room for voices that have been missing. A voice like Lynn Riggs and a story like Green Grow the Lilacs. The play is concerned with a more golden day in Oklahoma. Golden in the sense that the people I'm writing about were magnificently adapted to their environment. Hardy, vigorous, gay people. And their lives, being rounded and buried, were full of unpredictable choices. I'm saying let's embrace the complexity of history. I think that there's a different, hopefully, a golden future out there somewhere. Won't be perfect, but it need not be hazy. the show, go to Bloomberg.com slash Entrust. Entrust is a production of Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. 
This episode was hosted by me, Alison Herrera, and it was reported by Victor Iveas. Rachel Adams Heard and I did additional reporting. Victor Iveas is our senior producer. Jeff Grocott is our senior editor. Sage Bauman is our executive producer and head of podcasts. Additional support from Katie Boyce, Gilda DeCarly, and Kathleen Quillian. Sound engineering by Blake Maples. Our fact-checking was done by Molly Nugent. Theme music by Laura Ortman. Photography by Shane Brown. Voice acting by Jack Jackson. You can email us at podcasts at Bloomberg.net. Find and trust anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.